So tonight's talk has the title An Unfinished Talk <laughs> Reimagining the World. And, um, you know, I've really been trying to sort my ideas to give them some structure. My colleagues know. <laughs> also, trying to integrate some of the things that have been brought up in interviews. And uh, I'm afraid it's not completely coherent, but uh, I hope you just bear with it. And uh, I trust you have developed some equanimity during this week. So <laughs> you will just sit like a Buddha and, <laughs> and maybe have some compassion for me. <laughs> okay, so. So we do live as some of you have expressed, in a time of a lot of tension, a time of conflict and a lot of confusion in the world. And some of you have also expressed how this affects you emotionally, how it can really bring up feelings of hopelessness, of desperation, of helplessness, uh, a loss of control, of fear. and. This really confronts us with the question of how do we hold just the enormity of what is happening in the world in many places, you know, and on many levels. It's uh, quite enormous just if we open our eyes to everything that is going on on this small blue planet. And there are words that were spoken by the nun Upachala at the times of the Buddha that seem to speak directly to us in this time today. In a dialogue with Mara, the nun Upachala said, All the world is on fire. All the world is burning. All the world is ablaze. All the world is quaking. So it seems, you know, also at that time, there were difficulties, there were problems. Human beings were suffering a lot. And the question is, how do we respond to this situation? How can we practice with it? So we can really question under these circumstances what is the relevance of our practice to the situation that we encounter in the world around us? Uh, what's the meaning? And yeah, also practitioners, they ask us, for instance, Tanisa Ro writes, what is the value of all the meditation and mindfulness if we just sit and let the world burn? And indeed, sometimes Dharma practice can seem pretty detached from the real problems of the world. Somehow it is inspiring, it is healing on a personal level. Um, we, get, we become nicer people in our families and so. But sometimes maybe there is a feeling that this is ultimately not really relevant on a bigger level. 
And sometimes also Dharma practice, spiritual practice can be used as an excuse for not engaging, not dealing what is happening, um, what is going on around us in our relationships, uh, in our communities, in our countries and globally. Sometimes even just reading the news can be painful and overwhelming and the mind is easily tempted to slip into some denial or uh, numbness. It's, it feels like just too much to bear, even if we are aware that this won't help. Bhikkhu Bodhi writes about this. What lies behind this indifference and denial? How do we explain it? When we look at this phenomenon closely, we can see that it is sustained by two primal desires, drives, I'm sorry. One is desire or craving, which in this case is the fundamental desire for security. A wish that events will follow their familiar patterns. The other is fear, an instinctive dread of disruption. Beneath our outward self-assurance, lies a volatile whirlpool of anxiety, a suppressed concern that things will swerve off course and confront us with challenges we aren't equipped to meet. So there is a feeling of threat, a feeling of danger, and it can sometimes seem tempting to then just go into another world of you know, spirituality, engage with spiritual practices, and just staying in a kind of a spiritual cocoon that will somehow um, prevent us from having to deal with this outer world. There is a comic, I will put it up maybe tomorrow morning, um, where there is a man meditating in front of his altar that he has built in his room with his hands in uh, special mudras. And then one can see his wife standing next to him. And with an expression of indignation, the man is looking at his wife and says, Damn it, Gloria, here I am meditating and attaining all this inner peace and joy. And you interrupt just to find out what the hell I want for dinner. <laughs> so we treat the world as a meditation hindrance. You know, if only the world weren't there, then I could practice peacefully, yes? <laughs> but the world doesn't go away. <laughs> so Dharma practice can sometimes seem like a way of avoiding all those thorny and difficult and charged issues, a way to retreat from all the difficulty into our small little spiritual uh, island. And I think it is here really important that we start to understand, and it is a process in our practice that we more and more understand that this is an illusion that ultimately it will not work if we continue exploring our own experience, our relationships. Our, we will 
just start to notice that it all has to be included. There is nothing that we can just leave out and exclude from our spirituality. So it is a fundamental thing that we start to understand that Dharma practice is not about getting away from samsara, from all the mess of this world, but about changing our relationship to it. That's something that we have already said so many times during this week. And also what Akinchano mentioned yesterday evening. So that Dharma practice is not an escape from our body, from relationships, from nature, from society, from politics, from the totality of life. But it's rather the art of learning to live and participate in it all in a skillful and joyous way. You know, like the lotus flower that Akinchono mentioned. That it is about changing my relationship from a relationship that is based on wanting or not wanting to a relationship that is based on care, love, compassion, wisdom and equanimity. That I cannot find freedom by sealing myself off from the world, protecting myself from it, but by understanding that the idea of a separate self is a distorted perception. So tonight I would like to offer some thoughts, uh, reflections on this topic, and I'm aware that it is a huge topic that I'm still continuing to explore. And I'm really not pretending that I'm offering a final answer, but just a few thoughts that may be helpful for you. So how can we hold what is going on? How can we respond with wisdom and compassion? Because that's really, you could say, the ultimate aspiration, as in this story that probably many of you have already heard, you know, when a student asked his teacher, what is the aim, the goal of this whole practice? And the teacher said, an appropriate response. That's what our practice is about. So we, it has to do with responsibility. And when we are faced with big challenges, both in our individual life, but also collectively, sometimes we sense that just the enormity of what is happening, you know, like when, when someone is dying, maybe you have experienced that, we are somehow touched in a deeper existential dimension of our being. When we really allow ourselves to feel pain and overwhelm and uncertainty and shatteredness and helplessness, then sometimes we can notice that in this experience, so many trivialities just fall away from us. And that there is an immediacy and nakedness to our experience that so often we don't allow, but rather cover up. We feel that in such moments sometimes there is like a call that we can notice, that we can no longer pretend that, you know, this is not my business. Do you, do you know what I mean? So just being confronted with something that is so big and uh, overwhelming can 
really bring us back to ourselves in a very immediate way where we cannot escape anymore, where we just know, now I have to rise to this situation. I have to somehow meet it. Um, there is no possibility of hiding behind a role or going into some abstract theory or speculation or, you know, this therapy method. It's something that hits us very immediately and somehow we realize, okay, wow, now it's getting really, you know, existential. This is not just trivial what is happening. Uh, maybe we also feel a sense of inner duty or a call to somehow now really be present. I have experienced it at times just as, you know, when you're faced with extreme experiences in your life, you, you access the inner strength and the stillness and the clarity that is so often lost that we usually forget in our everyday life. And I think as practitioners, we are in a privileged situation here because we have practiced in so many hours of sitting and walking to learn how to create a space of peace in our hearts. We have learned to see how suffering arises in our minds and how suffering can be brought to an end, at least temporarily. And I feel really in these moments we are called into responsibility. When there is something so big arising, we are called to respond and to bring that which we have learned and understood into the world. So to bring the light of wisdom and compassion into the world. And maybe we feel a sense of I need to do something. I need to get I need to get going. I need to take action. I have to somehow engage with this. A sense of urgency you could call it to work for the good both within ourselves but also in the world. So the good side I th think is that times of threat and danger can wake us up from complacency and they can mobilize us to grow and to become stronger. Now, the Buddha spoke about the feeling that is aroused when the mind is confronted with dukkha, with pain and suffering. And it is called uh, samvega. So this feeling samvega is called sense of urgency. And it is the feeling that, for instance, the Prince Siddhartha felt when he met the divine messengers. So when he, this young man, was venturing out of his luxurious palace, he came across a person who was very old. Then he saw someone who was very sick. He saw some uh, corpse who was, uh, which was cremated. And finally, he met an ascetic and he understood that there was a spiritual path that could overcome this suffering. So he experienced both a very disturbing reality shock, wow, the understanding that this world was not as he had experienced it so far, that this was an 
illusion. And at the same time, he also realized that there was a possibility of addressing the suffering. So he experienced Samvega, this wholesome reaction of a mind that has been stirred out of complacency, this sense that something ought to happen, something ought to be done, a sense of urgency and also agitation, a certain agitation. Samvega is very different from resignation or depression, and we shouldn't mix it up. Rather, it is an inner urge to do something, to get going. Samvega doesn't collapse in the face of difficulty, but uh, it really compels us to rise to the situation and to seek ways of addressing what is going on. This is by Bhikkhu Bodhi. The sense of urgency draws upon desire and fear, but instead of pushing us to run amok, it instills in us a compelling conviction that we have to do something about our situation, that we have to embark in a new direction profoundly different from everything we've tried before. And then he wrote this, that's another passage from an article he wrote about climate change. While fear over climate disruption often spurs denial and ends in panic or mental paralysis, it may equally well give rise to some vega, a sense of urgency, leading to wise decisions to avert the crisis. Everything depends on how we metabolize our fear. I love that. Everything depends on how we metabolize our fear. So the fear is okay, but how do we metabolize it? How do we transform it into action, energy? And, you know, the Buddha taught that not everybody has the same feeling of urgency, the same sense of urgency. Some people are um, really stirred by those things that are truly stirring, like old age, death. Uh, yeah. And there are many people who are not stirred, you know, who don't notice what's happening, who are just continuing in their habitual way of living. So there is, again and again, the reminder, hey, wow, there are problems, there is dukkha in this world. Um, it has been since ages, it's nothing new. And all this dukkha should stir us up, it, it, it should bring us uh, into this uh, sense of urgency. But not everybody is sensitive in the same way. So when we meet challenges, such times of crisis, we could see them as messengers of the divine. So strong reminders of the truth of dukkha that can inspire us to really walk a path of transformation. If we become aware of suffering, of threat, we are called to reflect on our priorities in life and to make the necessary changes. Rather than letting our life be consumed by concerns about the newest iPhone or some fashion trend um, or other superficial, you know, I know 
the newest Netflix series or so. We, we look for what do I actually care for? What does really matter to me? What is that which counts for me? So there is really this question, are we truly, are we true to our deepest aspiration or do we allow life to just pass? Now Samvega is said to be the proximate cause of virya, of energy and perseverance and it is the antidote to complacency. So Samvega, this sense that something needs to be done about this situation, helps us to mobilize energy. And that is the reason why Samvega is the basis of true spiritual practice. And maybe you know this feeling, maybe it's very familiar for you, otherwise you wouldn't be sitting here. Um, Probably some Samvega was what brought you here to do a retreat. Samvega can be evoked when we allow ourselves to feel suffering, to be moved by it like Siddhartha and not dissociating from it. It can be aroused as we feel a profound grief about the situation of the world. This is Nyanaponi Katera, one who has clear and direct vision stirred to a sense of urgency by things which are deeply moving, will experience a release of energy and courage, enabling him to break through his timid hesitations and his rigid routine of life and thought. If that sense of urgency is kept alive, it will bestow the earnestness and persistence required for the work of liberation." So it's okay to allow ourselves to be touched by what is going on. But the question is, how can we transform this into skillful actions? How can we respond now on a concrete level? And I think the first aspect is what we have been doing during this week that we engage in this practice in order to develop our wisdom and our skills. As we engage in this practice, as we meditate, as we try, you know, bringing the attention back and learning to gain a deeper understanding of the nature of our experience, we develop so many qualities. We develop inner strength, steadiness, patience, Uh, deeper understanding, wisdom, compassion. We develop all kinds of skills. And unless we have found such a foundation and unless we have developed those skills and those resources, we won't be able to skillfully meet the difficulty and the challenges. Mathieu Ricard writes... Feelings of insecurity and fear are major obstacles to altruism. If we are affected by the slightest vexation, rebuff, criticism or insult, we find ourselves weakened by it and think above all of protecting ourselves. 
The feeling of insecurity leads us to close in on ourselves and to keep our distance from others. To become more altruistic, we have to develop an inner strength that makes us confident in our inner resources that let us face the constantly changing circumstances of existence. Fortified with this confidence, we are ready to open ourselves up to others and to display altruism. That is why Buddhism talks about courageous compassion. Gandhi too said, Love fears nothing and no one. It cuts through fear at its very root. So we develop the strength that enables us to go into action, to meet the challenges. Also in the discourses, you know, the Buddha said very clearly that if we tame this mind, if we develop and cultivate this mind, this will enable us to help others. If one is not tamed oneself and wishes to tame someone else who is untamed, that is impossible. If one is drowning oneself and wishes to rescue someone else who is drowning, that is impossible. So first we need to learn how to swim ourselves. And that's what we are doing here in our practice. We learn how to swim. We learn how not to drown. And in this we develop stability, steadiness, strength, courage, love, all these beautiful qualities of the mind. So we can really see that this practice that we're doing is an expression of love and compassion for all beings, that we do it for all beings, even those who have never heard about the Buddha or about Dharma, who are so, you know, suffering somewhere, just facing tremendous pain. We practice so that, in, so that one day we may be able to help them. And this is so important, this feeling of confidence, this feeling of I have something to offer, that I have developed some qualities. I, I'm still far away, you know, from being an awakened Buddha. But everything that we have learned can be a gift that we can share, that we can bring into this world. Many years ago, really many years ago, I had a dream, and it's actually very close to a traditional image. I had a dream of a building that was um, burning, and there was a big party going on in the building, and the people were drinking cocktails, and I was outside, and I thought, oh my God, it's burning. And I went into the house, and I tried to tell people, hey, the house is burning, and they didn't listen, and I felt so desperate. I felt so desperate because I couldn't wake them up and, t you know, get them out. So we need to learn the skills of how can we, you know, br bring light into this world. What is our way of bringing light to this world and helping other beings? And it could be in any ways. So that is the first thing, developing our own wisdom, our own skills. A second aspect um, has to do with opening our hearts and connecting. And it 
is very closely also linked to our development because as we grow, um, naturally our heart opens and we become more able to have good relationships, friendly relationships, to connect to other be beings, to have less feelings of separation. And especially in times of difficulty, I think it's so crucial that we consciously nurture this sense of connectedness, that we seek out other beings, that we cultivate caring, harmonious relationships, that we take care of sangha, that we um, know I am not alone in this, you know, I, I can share this with other beings and we can support each other in our growth and in our taking action. Um, Jack Cornfield, um, almost two years, one and a half years ago, he wrote a text, maybe you have read it, now is the time to stand up. Have you read it? Um, so it was a reaction to, you know, the events. And a quote from... <laughs> okay, I don't need any details. Huh? <laughs> so he writes... You are not alone. You have generations of ancestors at your back. You have the blessing of interdependence and community. You have the great trees of the forest as steadfast allies. You have the turning of the seasons and the renewal of life as your music. You have the vast sky of emptiness to hold all things graciously. So... Just acknowledging that we are depending on others also. We are embedded in relationships, in connections, and it's so important to take care of relationships, of connections, and just strengthen the, you know, the Sangha feeling in this time. That's where we also get inspiration for our practice. And then... On the basis of our understanding, our inner strengths and our skills, um, we become more and more able to offer ourselves to this world. And we can really grow from being a victim of the circumstances to a participant in something that is much bigger than us. And there are many ways of doing this, you know, volunteer work, political action, art, science. I mean, it's endless. The possibilities are endless what we can do. But now, for tonight, I would like to explore with you uh, just one aspect that may seem a little bit surprising, but I hope you find it in some way relevant to the topic. And it has to do with how we shape our experiential world and the significance of this. So, we have seen during this week how uh, our mental states color our perception, our, how our reactivity to Vedana has an impact, how we are again and again caught in the deep grooves of, you know, uh, patterns. And again and again we notice how we 
find ourselves in whirlpools uh, from which it is really difficult to get out. And in this whole process, we can gradually start to notice how we are constantly creating and recreating a world, not just through our actions, but by the way we frame our world, how we perceive it, how we make sense of it. Actually, when we look at our mind processes more closely and in a more refined and subtle way, we see how there is a whole process of world and self building going on all the time that begins with a very innocuous sense contact uh, that has a certain Vedana flavor, you remember, huh? Vedana flavor, and then it runs through, uh, through perception and then thinking about the perception and then the proliferation around uh, uh, the thinking. Huh? So it is in this whole process from the sense contact to the proliferating uh, thinking that we create whole inner worlds that we then inhabit and where we get lost usually. And through our practice, we gradually start to see through this process of world-making, of self-making. Uh, Chris also spoke about the self-making, you remember? And we start not to believe it as much anymore, because we see how it is created, fabricated. Susan Hukam writes that thought world has its own storyline of the past and future, its own value system, its own flavor and mood. It has its own story of who we are, and we find ourselves identifying with that. We have taken birth in it. And we also see this in others happening. We see how everyone is living in their own very particular universe. And it's actually, you know, so such a privilege to hear people talking about their experience and just to see how each person is a whole universe. It's amazing. Now, if we are not aware of the fabricated nature of our subjective world, of our thought worlds, this is really the source of so much tension and suffering. So the practice lets us recognize more and more that our phenomenal world, the world that we experience, is fabricated by the mind moment by moment. And actually, it is this phenomenal world that the Buddha was most interested in, to explain how this personal phenomenal world is constructed and shaped. He discouraged metaphysical speculations, for instance, about rebirth or uh, the beginning of time or so. Um, he always pointed his listeners back to their own immediate experience because it is only through careful exploration and investigation of our own experience that enables us to understand the nature of all experience. And 
gradually we realize how our whole experience is really a constantly shifting and morphing and very dynamic experience. It's not so stable and fixed if we tune into the process nature of experience. And how it is that the mind tries to create an illusion of solidity and permanence by putting labels on things, by naming things, by trying to make sense of the very vague, changing sense impressions that constantly impinge on us. Now, this process is so crucial because the way we look and perceive then determines the whole process that follows from there, the emotions that arise, our relationships that we have, uh, the actions that we take. It all depends on the way of looking. For instance, um, we also can examine how are things. You know, we have this phrase that is quite common in Vipassana circles, um, that we learn to be with things as they are. Hmm. What does that mean? It can be misunderstood in a way that suggests that there is a substantial way how things are. But when you explore your own re experience, how are things really? Can you tell? How many people have experienced this? You bring your attention to your breath, and in this moment, through attending to your breath, you notice a change in the way you breathe. Yeah? Have you had that experience? <laughs> yeah. So, how can we exactly define how the breath is? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, as soon as I try to find out, it has already changed. Yeah? Or we have a pain during meditation, and our first thought is, oh, it's an illness. How is the pain experienced? And then maybe a teacher tells us, oh, you know, there are meditative pains. So maybe it's a meditative pain, maybe it's part of the progress, you know. And the experience of the pain is very different, dependent on how we perceive it, how we make sense of it. Which experience is true? Now... All these examples tell us something about the fabricated nature of our experience. They tell us something important about the fact that even basic experience that we take to be basic are not basic after all, that they always change depending on our way of relating to them, our way of framing them. We start to understand that we cannot really fix them and get hold of them. And in this, we touch into a groundlessness beneath this layer of concepts and meanings. The problem in our everyday life is that normally we are absolutely not aware of the extent to which the totality of our experience is created and fabricated through perception, through thinking. We live and in and through, you know, our perception and thinking without being aware of this fact. So in a way we are quite naive. 
we simply assume that what we experience is the reality. And we're not aware that this so-called reality is just the fabrication of our perception and conception. So my very naive sense is I'm sitting in a meditation hall and there are other people and we are in the United States and uh, there are lamps and, you know, this is a very conventional reality and it seems so convincing. And I'm not aware how my perception is totally dependent on how I have learned concepts about human beings, countries, um, space, time, it all depends on the, the background, you know, um, how do you say in English, schema, yeah, that um, hmm? pattern or schemes, yeah, that, you know, that make sense of this field of visual impressions. Basically, it's just colors, um, different, you know, brightness or shadow, different textures. If I didn't know, you know, that there are faces, if I didn't have the biological um, foundations also, it was, would just be a meaningless uh, visual experience. experience. So we take this reality as real and in a very naive way. We don't see through the construction process. And then we become stuck in our perceptions, in our views, in how things seem to be. And thereby we lose our ability to think and act freshly and creatively. If we take our view of things for real and absolute, we fixate on it and we believe those impressions. We lose our flexibility to respond. Mingyur Rinpoche once wrote, when we become fixed in our perceptions, we lose our ability to fly. So that's the first problem. We have a lack of awareness of the fabricated nature of our experience. And through this, we lose a certain flexibility. And the second problem is that the way how we perceive and conceive, how we make sense of ourselves and of the world is deeply habituated and conditioned. And it is conditioned in a way that it creates a lot of suffering. Yesterday, Akinshano mentioned the so-called distortions of the mind that create so much suffering. You know, the fact that unfortunately our perception um, gives, doesn't give us a true and clear picture of things, but it presents us a world that seems so solid and permanent with attractive objects that promise some pleasure and gratification and unpleasant objects that we fear or dislike. And in addition to those very universal, fundamental distortions, we also have all the conditionings by our biography. Um, you know, our whole upbringing and education, our worldview, the culture, the belief systems, our knowledge, all these influences um, that we were exposed to throughout our lives. 
So we constantly view ourselves and the world through the lenses of our history, our past. And in this way, we limit ourselves because we become unable to perceive somehow that which is beyond our concept, beyond our you know, familiar way of making sense of the world. So we could say that our way of looking solidifies and freezes our fleeting, dynamic, ungraspable experience of uh, things, no, ungraspable experience into graspable objects and things that are defined by the labels that we put on them. And the thinking mind apprehends the world through names, labels, categories, and in this finds also a sense of control. If I can name something, if I can put it into a box, I feel more safe. It is actually amazing, really, how through this whole perceptual and conceptual process, a world appears that seems so real and true out there. And there appears a very solid self. You know what Chris spoke about two days ago. Bhikkhunyanananda writes, the vague percepts which are already tainted with a notion of stability owing to the limitations of the sensory apparatus become fully crystallized into concepts in the realm of ideation. And... At the final and crucial stage of sense perception, the concepts are, as it were, invested with an objective character. This phenomenon is brought about mainly by certain peculiarities inherent in the linguistic medium. So it's so interesting. We start with very vague sense impressions and at the end we have things that are invested with objectivity, you know, how through the process of perceiving and conceiving an objective world and an objective self arises. Okay, now maybe you start to wonder where this is all going. So the point I want to make is that in understanding this process of self-making and world-making, we understand the conditional nature of all of our experience, the fabricated nature of our experience. Robert Bia, he's an English Dharma teacher, writes about this. We construct through our way of looking what we experience. This is a part of what needs eventually to be recognized and fully comprehended. Sooner or later, we come to realize that perhaps the most fundamental and most fundamentally important fact about any experience is that it depends on the way of looking. That is to say, it is empty. Other than what we can perceive through different ways of looking, there is no objective reality independ existing independently. And there is no way of looking that reveals some objective reality. This is profound. My experience 
depends on how the mind is shaping and constructing the experience. And therefore, there is no way to say that anything is true in an absolute sense, except for it depends. Everything I perceive depends on the mental state that is present, on the concepts, on the ideas, on the situation in which I find myself, and vice versa. There is also dependency the other way around. The perceptions influence the mind states. So we have influences in both directions and changes in the experience moment by moment. It's like a constant dance of conditions creating our experience. To realize the conditionality of our experience might at first feel a little bit unsettling because it questions deep and often unquestions unquestioned assumptions about reality, about how things are. It shows us that our phenomenal experience is always co-created by the mind. It is not independent and not self-existent. But it can also open up a tremendous sense of freedom and openness because we get a sense that things are much more fluid and flexible than we thought. This understanding can loosen our clinging to a certain way of looking. To the extent that I am aware that everything that I experience is dependent on the way I look, to this extent, I can also become more flexible and less fixated on a certain view. And I don't need to become so dogmatic about it. I can start to move in and out of certain ways of looking according to the specific situation and according to my goals. If I need to, you know, understand uh, water in a scientific way, then maybe the chemical formula um, will be a very appropriate way of looking at water. But if I look at water as one of the four basic elements in Buddhist meditation, it's a very different way of looking at water. So we can become very flexible around concepts. So we realize we have a choice in how we frame, how we look, how we make sense of things. And we also start to realize that there lies a responsibility, how we choose. So again, Robert Bia, he writes, for it is in fact the fundamental openness, or you could say emptiness of things, that allows us the possibility to play with ways of looking and see their effects on the heart and the perception. We have seen that there are ways of looking that create a lot of suffering and tension. And we can train in new, more skillful ways of looking individually and what I would like to propose also collectively. The question is really, where are we stuck in certain worldviews, in certain ways of looking individually and collectively? We have, you know, so many... <laughs> categories, for instance, how we perceive people, how we perceive groups. Um, we have opinions about so many things and then different opinions and it creates so much conflict. 
we have um, perceptions of minority groups that lead to tremendous discrimination and hurt, or we have a way of seeing the this world, the whole planet and nature in a way that has direct implications on how we treat this planet, how we care for nature, for instance. So it's really something I feel we need to explore. Where are we repeating and reconfirming certain ways of looking individually and collectively that create and support separation? degradation, exploitation, ways of looking that make us feel victimized and helpless. And I really believe that one way of practicing and contributing to this world is to intentionally create and invent new possible ways of looking, new ways of thinking that can create more harmony and bring hope and joy and healing. So the question is, how can I create ways of looking that help and heal rather than reinforce, you know, sadness or conflict? That's a quote by Vilayat Inayat Khan. The future is not there waiting for us. We create it by the power of imagination. My sense is today that many people lack a sense of personal meaning and relevance of their life because in modern culture, with its emphasis on consumerism and materialism, there is not much room for such ways of looking that tell us about our purpose in life, about how we are embedded in a bigger perspective about how we are meant to be a part of this beautiful process of life. We are so often reduced, you know, our whole multidimensionality, being a human being, is just so much reduced to certain categories. I am this, I am that, I'm not this, I'm not that, um, I have this, I don't have that. And we lose the richness and the depths of our being. We, we disconnect from a deeper beauty of our being because we just maybe see ourselves as producers or com consumers in this world. And I think there is re really a lot of suffering coming out from this lack of connection with a bigger understanding, a lack of meaning, a lack of a way of looking that um, gives us a sense of purpose in our life. This is a quote by a book from Joanna Macy. It's all a question of story, says Thomas Berry. We are in trouble just now because we do not have a good story. Though they hold little meaning for us, no. We had some good stories of our world in the past. They did not necessarily make people good, nor did they take away the pains and stupidities of life or make for unfailing warmth in human association. They did provide a context in which life could function in a meaningful manner. And that is all we ask right now, that life function in a meaningful manner or just function 
period. <laughs> Barry and his colleague, cosmologist Brian Swim, hold that the new story we need to guide us through the perils of this era must include the whole universe and all its beings. So what stories do we tell to ourselves? You know, all day we are telling stories. We are creating a way of looking. What stories do we tell to others? What stories do we tell to our children? If through our practice we learn to connect to a deeper wisdom in us, if we touch into the empty and groundless nature of all experience, this will in itself have a huge impact on our way of looking. And we start to find a profound meaning for ourselves. So if we start to touch into a transcendent dimension of our being, this can be so transformative and healing to learn another way of looking that makes this dimension available to us even in the midst of a lot of chaos, of a lot of pain, of a lot of difficulty. We can have a way of looking that includes this deeper dimension even as we are working in our office, as we are commuting to our work, as we are cooking dinner. We can have a way of looking that includes the pain and the difficulty and at the same time includes the knowledge and the trust of a deeper peace that is always available. It really depends on our way of looking, whether we see beauty, sacredness, loveliness in the world, besides the difficult, besides the pain. It is the mind and the way the mind relates to the objects that creates the world that we then inhabit. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, To the poet, to the philosopher, to the saint, all things are friendly and sacred, all events profitable, all days holy, all men and women divine. If we are inclined to open to more imaginal, creative or symbolic ways of looking, this can bring a lot of flexibility, but also meaningfulness and depth to our lives. And it can help us to loosen up rigid and fixed and narrow views and transform our way of experiencing in a very playful way, in a joyful way and at the same time profound. Actually, oh I see I'm going over. In some traditions they take all of this much further, but I cannot go into this now. You know, just to mention the Buddhist tantric traditions that put a huge emphasis on this whole imaginal approach. For instance, my Tibetan teacher very often reminds us to remember a pure view, meaning that we should see everything as Buddha field, that we should hear all sounds as sacred mantras, that we can see the Buddha nature in every being. So... we can discover a way of looking that includes a knowledge or a trust in a deeper dimension 
a deeper peace. And having this connection, this grounding, also awakens in us the compassion to bring this knowledge and understanding to the world. Tanisara writes, Realization and deepening our alignment to the deathless heart alters our perspective. As insight into the living reality of interconnectedness unfolds, our practice shifts from a personal goal of transcendence that seeks to leave the world to a fuller transmission that embraces the world from a place of compassion. We see that, yes, the suffering is enormous, it seems endless, overwhelming, and at the same time, we can discover a way of looking that is aware of another dimension that is always accessible in the midst of chaos, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of conflict. Something that cannot be put into words, but something that we can deeply know and learn to trust. And we realize that to have this you know, more vertical dimension, to be in touch with it, enables us to hold all the tension and difficulty in another light, in another perspective. And I would like to close with a quote, a beautiful way of looking that is again offered by Joanna Macy. We are now at a point unlike any other in our story. Perhaps we have in some way chosen to be here at this culminating chapter or turning point. We have opted to be alive when the stakes are high, to test everything we have ever learned about interconnectedness and courage, to test it now when it could be the end of conscious life on this beautiful water planet hanging like a jewel in space. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.